This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, good afternoon, um, ladies and gentlemen. About half the shrinks of Edinburgh are here. <laughs> um, I'm Richard Holloway, and it's my pleasure and privilege to chair this interesting event. So welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, this particular session is part of a strand at the festival that's exploring hearing voices, and it's prompted by an interdisciplinary study at Durham University on the subject, and our focus today is specifically on the religious angle. It's highly appropriate that, that the religious angle of hearing voices should be here in Edinburgh because one of the most significant books on the subject began its life in Edinburgh. William James, the American psychologist, the brother of Henry James, the novelist, came to deliver the Gifford Lectures in Edinburgh in the years 1901 to 1902. And they became one of the classic religious texts of the 20th century, it's still in print, varieties of religious experience. Um, and he pointed out how most of the revealed religions had their origin in seers and prophets and spiritual people who heard voices and saw visions, and from those experiences, the great faith systems and religions grew. He was very interested in the psychology of that, and he said um, as a psychologist that obviously the immediate um, uh, force and energy of hearing voices comes from the subconscious and erupts from the subconscious into the conscious mind. But he then went on to say, does it come from somewhere else as well? And he evolved a kind of hypothesis of two doors, one door from the subconscious into the conscious mind, but a far door from the subconscious into the transcendent, into the divine. Um, now, that's obviously quite a provocative challenge for um, entirely secular-minded people who don't believe there is an other or transcendent realm, but it was the way William James um, dealt with the phenomenon. And we will think about that angle this afternoon, but not exclusively, because one of the things that's traditionally happened, of course, is that hearing voices has been regarded as a symptom of mental illness. And the kind of... Um, uh, the medicalizing of this phenomenon has created a pathological approach to it, and it's interesting that we've got a psychiatrist here um, who probably will take a slightly different angle, but if you go to your doctor telling that you're hearing voices, the chances are that you will not be interrogated mystically or religiously, but you'll be put on pills try to suppress the voices. We'll, we'll try and explore some of that stuff um, this afternoon. It's fascinating and problematic, and we've got two very interesting thinkers to help us. Sarah Maitland is a writer who built herself a cottage in the hills of Galloway years ago so that she could explore the experience of silence. Um, and she writes not only non-fiction but short stories. She's, she's an artist in words in both um, aspects of literature. Uh, Chris Cook is both a psychiatrist and a theologian who works at Durham University. Um, Sarah is a Roman Catholic. Uh, Chris is an Anglican priest. Please welcome them both. Sarah will go first. They'll each speak for about up to 10 minutes. Then we'll have a, a wee conversation and then open to you because I know that's really what you've come for. Sarah, thank you.
thank you. Um, just quickly, one of the things about being on a platform like this is I can't see any of you because <laughs> the lights are in my eyes. <laughs> so you can be my back door into my uh, unconscious. Um, I'm not really the right person to be uh, giving this thing because, in my view, the voice of God completely drowns out psychiatry. Um, people have got this back to front. I say that from my own personal experience, that since I took to uh, praying with more seriousness, I have not been afflicted by uh, psychiatric problems, which I had before. So, uh, um, as far as I'm concerned, listen to God more and um, psychiatry less. But um, what I really, I think, what I really want to say is today is that I think that voice hearing is even more complex than Richard has laid it out, outlined it so easily. Because in pre-psychiatry, lots of people thought that it was sometimes the voice of God and sometimes it was a mental health issue and could live perfectly happily with both. Uh, Marjorie Kemp, the somewhat peculiar um, medieval mystic, for example, heard both sorts of voices, the voices of what she herself called madness, and the voice of God, and she could distinguish. It's a very interesting thing in her writing, um, which was probably dictated and is a quite problematic text from a textual point of view. It also has to be said that she must have been a very difficult person. <laughs> um, there's a very nice bit she writes when she's on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. She gets up one morning and finds that all the other pilgrims have gone off in their boat leaving her behind, and you're so on their side, <laughs> the uh, fellow traveller from hell. But nonetheless, she was very clear, and that clarity was accepted by people around her, that sometimes she was, to put it very crudely, start raving bonkers, and sometimes she was hearing the voice of God. I think the important thing here is that she was able to make that distinction. And in one sense, um, we very much what psychiatry had done is narrowed down the ways that we might perceive these things. Um, Teresa of Avila, who I think we would all want to say was not very mad, um, very sensible, she actually thinks that there's five different sources of people who have um, visionary experiences, both visual, which in a way she was more interested in, but also auditory. Um, and she felt um, that what you had to do was diagnose which voice you were getting in terms of the content, what the voices were saying, um, and what effect that had on the non-visionary behavior of the person receiving the visions. She thought that it might be that the person was a liar. She lived in a society in which there was a very high value put on mystical experiences, and she thought you had to be always on your toes that people were just making it up. She also thought rather sweetly that it might come from an overactive imagination, which is a very interesting um, take on it. Um, it might be, and she certainly was happy to admit this, that the person had serious mental health issues, for which I think she had extremely good treatment, incidentally. What she said is that people who were suffering in this way um, needed to be treated with extremely strong discipline applied with great tenderness. And I have to say, I think that would be quite good advice for lots of people, particularly depressives, now. Um, where have we got to? That was three. It might be the devil um, whose voice, because the devil's very good, in her view, at disguising himself. Uh, her devil was a very male devil. 
um, disguising himself as the voice of God. Um, and she said, so long as the hearer of that was humble enough, there was no harm in that at all, because the devil was, in fact, a very fine artist and might say really interesting things in order to persuade you it was God. Um, and it might indeed be the voice of God. Now, that gives you a great deal of latitude and I would almost want to say open-mindedness, which we've sort of lost now. And what we've really lost, I think, is attention to content. You know, I said to somebody, not Chris, who is a psychiatrist, I said, I thought there was something wrong with their methodology because they didn't seem to have any way of distinguishing between Blake um, and Sutcliffe. And they said, no, you can't distinguish. They've both got uh, psychotic diseases. Now, frankly, I don't think that's good enough. Um, I think that Blake wrestled with his uh, mental health issues, if you want to call them that. Um, but so far as we know, he was a reasonably good father. He was an extremely fine poet. Peter Sutcliffe went out. Peter Sutcliffe's God, of course, was phenomenally inaccurate, which does make one want to raise this um, with God, really. I mean, if God doesn't know who's a prostitute, um, there seems to be something wrong going on. It would seem to me that the clearly both the content and the effect that it has on somebody has to be part of the evidence. You can't just isolate um, the experience of hearing voices. Um, contemporary psychiatry is, I think, very absolutist about this, but it's also oddly selective. Because when President Bush said that God had told him to bomb Iraq, no one reacted as though they thought he was a psychotic. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought he was wrong. <laughs> Actually, there's a very, very funny article um, that somebody wrote uh, diagnosing him as completely bonkers. Uh, but on the whole, that was not the way the media took him. Certainly nobody sectioned him as they would have done um, to a young black man particularly, um, and particularly in the southeast, um, where there is a completely disproportionate um, diagnosis that is culturally directed. And I think we have to remember that all the time, um, that on the whole, um, cultural systems are rather more racist than God is, in my experience. Uh, of course, I'm white and middle class, so uh, I would think that wouldn't happen. Um, not male, though. Um, I really like to say that in my experience, both my personal experience um, and the experience of people I've talked to, that most of the people who do hear voices are perfectly capable of knowing whether or not they are divine or not. Not everyone, and there clearly are people who are advancedly ill who've lost that distinction. But I'm with Marjorie Kemp. I think if you're paying attention, you do know when you're hearing stuff which is um, dangerous, dangerous to you, dangerous to others, bad, um, violent, negative, and when you're hearing the voice of God, which is mostly extremely agreeable, um, tends to be, as we see in the Old Testament prophets, very beautiful and is well worth recording. So I think what I want to argue for is a greater flexibility and a flexibility more based on content than on phenomena.
and we need to look very carefully because if we do absolutely pre-assume we know what is causing people, whoever those people are, to hear voices, then we are going to miss what they might be saying. And we know from the whole, really, of cultural history um, that a lot of people under those circumstances are saying very, very interesting things, things that are worth hearing, things that are worth reading, things that are worth taking on board. I think that's what I want to say. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, um, what an interesting question. Has psychiatry silenced God? When I was presented with this, I, I thought it raised so many fascinating possibilities. Scope for sermons, for books, for lectures, for all kinds of uh, reflection that we won't have time to explore to its limits this afternoon. But if God is God, how could psychiatry possibly silence her? If God is omnipotent, as most people who believe in God imagine that he or she is, then surely it's a non-sequitur, it's an impossibility. We couldn't silence God. And I wonder whether, in fact, the question, I have no idea who composed the question. I'm sorry, Richard, if it was you. <laughs> there was a sub-editor at the book festival. sub-editor. We'll blame the sub-editor. Mm -hmm. Was there a presupposition that, in fact, the question is really, is there no God? And... Has psychiatry actually demonstrated that to everyone's satisfaction? Has psychiatry merely shown, as Freud argued, that religion is a neurosis, or as Dawkins likes to argue, that God is a delusion? Or, in terms of the projects that I'm involved with in Durham, is the voice of God simply an hallucination? Did God never really say anything in the first place? We just thought that he did. This option uh, may seem a little crass. I don't know if it sounds different in Edinburgh than it does in England, but certainly in uh, secular university contexts, it's so easy to argue that kind of um, supposition that it's almost uh, not worthy of comment. And indeed, in some areas of psychiatry, it has become commonplace to write papers showing that St. Paul or Teresa of Avila, whom Sarah mentioned, or Joan of Arc, or countless other people, including Jesus and including the Prophet Muhammad, um, actually were suffering from various kinds of psychiatric condition. And it's never actually said explicitly at the end of the article, but clearly what the author is saying is, and so psychiatry now knows what was going on. Obviously, there was no God. There was nothing divine, nothing theological being said. And I have to say, um, there might be a convincing argument were it not the case that so many of the authors of these papers show themselves crassly ignorant of faith tradition, of the way in which sacred texts are interpreted, of uh, the use of metaphor and uh, symbol and allegory in uh, religious writing. And the ignorance is actually quite frightening. But does our question merely propose something slightly different, that actually psychiatry has tried to silence God, perhaps with partial success? 
many mental health users, uh, me mental health service users tell me that they want to be able to talk to their psychiatrist, their mental health professional, about their faith and the relationship of that with their mental health problem. But they're frightened to do so because so often they, or others whom they know, have been told that actually this is all a part of the pathology. Actually, just keep taking the tablets, just keep going along for your CBT, and in the end it will all be all right because this is just a feature of your illness. It's not something that deserves our attention. It's a waste of our clinical time. And to some extent, if that's what the question implies, um, the answer is in the affirmative. Yes, psychiatry has silenced God because psychiatry has prevented many people with mental health problems talking about what they believe God has been saying to them or about what their experience of God has been amidst their suffering. And we know that there is a huge religiosity gap. Mental health professionals are much less likely to believe in God than our mental health service users. So the scene is set for this kind of misunderstanding. However, however, I think that if this is what the question implies, there's a suggestion that the tide is turning, and we know that much more interest is being taken now in psychiatry, clinically and in research, in terms of the positive part that spirituality and faith can play in the understanding and treatment of mental disorder. And much research is now beginning to attend to that. The Spirituality Special Interest Group of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, of which I'm a part, um, is actively concerned with this. Indeed, the Spirituality Special Interest Group is one of the most popular and active special interest groups within the college at the present time, with um, several thousand members. But I think, actually, both of those interpretations of the question are problematic because they tend to push us towards a kind of black-and-white um, interpretation of things which presupposes a right and a wrong answer, which are uh, perhaps equally dangerous, or certainly they each carry their own risks. And another possible interpretation of the question, I think, implies an approach which seems to be much less often argued. Perhaps psychiatry might be helpful in some ways, for example, in encouraging us to be cautious about claiming too much that we know exactly what words God has spoken and exactly how they should be interpreted. Psychiatry has helped us to be more aware, I think, at its best, that we are so easily deceived by our subconscious, by false or uh, misinterpreted perceptions, by brain disorders and by social and cultural preoccupations. And perhaps in that respect, it's not too far from the approach that Teresa of Avila was taking, which Sarah has just described to us. And I'd like to suggest that perhaps God is actually heard better in silence. Perhaps we need to get better at listening to the silence rather than attending to an audible voice that may or may not be from our own subconscious. This was something that St John of the Cross and St Teresa of Avila were both keenly aware of. They were very suspicious of the saints who came to them telling that they uh, had a hotline to God, that they knew exactly what God had been saying. So I think that we should be better at listening to voices. Perhaps we need to start with the voice of our own hearts and minds, our own subconscious, if you like. Certainly we need to be better at listening to the voices of those around us, particularly those with uh, mental illness. Um, 
But we need to be better at listening to the silence too and being less ready to imagine that we know exactly what God has said and that we have a monopoly on that. So I think there's plenty of scope for some exciting discussion this afternoon. It's uh, lovely to be here and I'm looking forward to the questions that you'll all be putting to us. Thank you. Um, one of the fascinating things that occurs to me is that there, there's um, a mediating position. Well, it's not a mediating position. It's a third position. Um, it, it's a bit like um, Don Cupid's approach to God. You can either, be, um, you can either see God as, as a delusion um, or as a reality or as a human construct informed with meaning. Uh, so you don't actually have to be completely someone who repudiates voice hearing as, uh, as, as a pure pathology um, uh, or identify it as transcendent. Um, and I would have thought that part of the therapeutic profession's um, approach should be somehow to, find, to, to make, make distinctions in there. Do they actually, well, you as a mental health professional, as a psychiatrist, someone comes to you hearing voices... Um, are you suggesting that automatically the assumption is that this is madness, this is a pathology, that you don't ask about what they're hearing, you immediately um, find a way of either stopping them? Are there any psychiatrists who actually explore what Sarah has called the content of the voices? I mean, in your own experience, Sarah, I mean, have, have, have you, has anyone been interested in what you've heard as opposed to assuming that you must be bonkers because you're hearing something. Very often the bonkers are interesting. Yeah. <laughs> People yeah. can be interested in what and you're bonkers. saying. And it, yes. Yes. you can say something interesting and be bonkers. Yes. But you can yes. also hear something interesting and think that the speaker is bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's quite important to remember. It's not, yeah. not all the mad are boring. Um, actually, very often the poor mad are boring. But the two don't necessarily... Mm -hmm. Fits in. Can I just? I really want to take up this business about it would not be possible to silence God that you started with just very quickly because it seems to me that silencing can happen at either end. It would be impossible mm -hmm. to, if God exists in the kind of way that I believe that God exists, then it would be impossible to silence God, but you could silence the receptors to God, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think there's always this confusion with silence. You can stop the person saying anything but you can also stop anybody hearing it. And stopping anybody hearing it, whatever it was, was used a lot, for example, by putting people into prison. Um, you know, a lot of artists in um, the Soviet days in Russia really were silenced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because they could, maybe in the prison, they were still shouting out interesting, important things. But if people can't hear, and it seems to me, we have to, when we look at has psychiatry silenced the voice of God. It could be, have we silenced our cultural capacity to hear it mm. or to be open to yes. the hearing of it, which yes. is the bit that yes. you left out, because I think silence is really complicated in that sense. There's silence in and... I always compare it to a radio. Um, if you turn the radio off, you've got silence. If they stop broadcasting, you've got silence. And best of all, if you break it up with static, no message is transferred. Yeah. So I think when we talk about, I mean, I'm very moved with what you said about silence, but I think we have to be quite careful to make silence a pretty sophisticated tool. 
if we're going to well, ask think, it to yeah. challenge both God and psychiatry. This is where I think the question begs perhaps too simplistic an answer. Sorry, Deborah. Uh, no, 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 this is fine. It's a rammy fact. Get it on. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think one could make the case that God is silence and that actually if, if you are in silence, you are in God and you are actually listening to God. Um, and you can kind of reverse the question that actually if psychiatry were to have created silence, there wouldn't have been a problem. <laughs> but, but it hasn't done that. It's done something rather different. It's tried to silence a particular voice, the voice of those who say that they um, believe that they can be in communication with God in some way, not necessarily in audible words, mm. but, but that yeah. they can hear God in a metaphorical sense. That, that's the dangerous kind of silencing, I think. But what about the horrible voice? I mean, I've got a friend who has voices constantly denouncing her. Yes. Um, uh, and the nuisance voices, um, voices that you don't want to hear. Um, I mean, how, how do you respond to those kinds of things apart from um, medicating them into zombies? I mean, is it, it, well, it, it, with long-term yeah. analysis? I mean, are it's, there, it's interesting you are say that because I, I've also got a friend. I don't yeah. know if this is the same friend yeah. <laughs> um, who hears. Uh, she's a, a Christian lady um, who hears the voices of demons that say horrible things, mm -hmm. um, and she would say if she were here that her faith has been one of the probably the greatest resource in helping her to cope with all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure she would say that she understands very well that this is not the voice of God and that, that, um, you know, that this is not something that's helpful or in any way uplifting in her life. Um, but she would say that actually medication has been really helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and against those who condemn the medical model mm -hmm. of all psychiatrists mm -hmm. as being ignorant and so forth, mm -hmm. um, she would say that actually psychiatry has brought her a lot of relief mm -hmm. from, from her suffering. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to listen to each story on its own merits, don't we? There, there, mm. there are many different experiences. For one person, medication is, is hell. For another person, it, it's let them out of prison. So, mm. yeah, we, we have to... Did, Sarah, do you think that um, if you accept the reality of the supernatural, the transcendent, you also have to accept the reality and the experience of supernatural evil? Um, no, I don't think, hang on, do I, or is it necessary to do so? They're not the same Both question. or either. I mean, I how clear, do you handle the question? It clearly is not necessary yeah. to do so. There are yeah. lots and lots of people who yeah. believe in various forms of an ultimate deity who yeah. do not believe yeah. Um, yeah. there is supernatural <clears throat> evil. I would tend to take an extremely old-fashioned orthodox position which says that if God creates everything, then everything is in its fundamental shape good, and that therefore, although that is evil, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to have an equal. I'm not a Manichaean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. believe that there's good and evil essentially with similar amounts of powers fighting it out. I think that's a bit too computer gamey for me. Um, so I think those are very nuanced. I asked the question because um, question. there's an increasing interest in what's called deliverance ministry. Yes. Um, and it can be extremely dangerous. I mean, most dioceses in the Anglican Church will have deliverance officers that you go to, um, and uh, th th they, they will guide you through it uh, right up to a kind of five-star exorcism, um, which is a pretty hairy thing to witness. Um, and uh, I'm 
extremely wary of that because I mean yes. it seems to me that 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 I mean that has sometimes issued in death. I mean, what's your take on that as both a priest and a, and a psychiatrist? I mean, the church can get into terrible trouble when it starts meddling with this stuff. Mm, it does. Um, I'm not a member of our diocesan deliverance team, but mm. I, I know the members of the team. I know the <coughs> convener of the team, uh, who's um, a very interesting man to talk to, who's been doing this for quite a few years now. Mm -hmm. And he says that um, in whatever it is, 14, 15 years of... of of his experience with this work, he's uh, very rarely, if ever, found it necessary to offer a, a, an exorcism of yeah, a strict, yeah. sort of narrowly conceived kind. He would often pray for people and so forth, but um, he, he would say that if, if uh, any kind of personified objective evil exists out there, it, it doesn't seem to come his way very often. Mm -hmm. Whereas he frequently encounters problems with the plumbing, uh, <laughs> young children and pets who move things around the home, and, and very commonly um, instances of mental illness, which we have discussed mm -hmm. on a number mm -hmm. of occasions, mm -hmm. and which usually have responded well to um, appropriate treatment. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember as a young psychiatrist, one of the first instances of this kind I came across was a young man who'd been... Um, well, I can't say blessed, I, I have to say tortured by a series of well-meaning Christians who had offered various forms of deliverance, mm. all to no avail, and who, on what was then very crude medication um, of, of a very early kind, um, actually made a good recovery in local psychiatric services. Mm. And um, I think the problem is that not only do psychiatrists not understand a lot about faith, but actually ordinary Christians don't understand a lot about mental health <laughs> issues either. I do think that there is, at a lower level than that, a perfectly good use of consolation. Yeah. If you, I mean, particularly um, pastorally, would say the elderly, sometimes just to say, here is some holy water. If this is upsetting you, <clears throat> splash it about your kitchen. <laughs> and not ever go into what's causing this upsetment. You are upset, you feel mm -hmm. vulnerable, here is some action. I can't be here all the time, particularly if the person has great confidence in their clergy or um, minister of any kind. So I don't think we should overlook... Consolation is always treated as though it's a kind of cop-out. But actually, we know with babies it isn't. Mm. So if you've got a screaming baby in the night, one of the best things you can do is pick it up and console it. Um, and I think that that's probably true of all of us. Um, I mean, you can't say to somebody, oh, go and buy a new frock or go to the hairdressers or something, but you can say, what we, could we do that is nice, that doesn't make any judgment about what's mm -hmm. happening? And mm -hmm. I do think that for many people, those symbols of faith slot into yeah. their imaginations mm -hmm. in a place yes. where it really helps, and mm -hmm. it's pretty harmless. I mean, it's more likely to be harmless than many forms of antipsychotics, for mm. example. You mm. might as well start with the holy water and yep. move on to the antipsychotics. Mm. I, I was called, when I was a parish priest in the Royal Mile, I was called up to a student residence at the top of the Royal Mile, an old building, where a bunch of students one Sunday night had been uh, doing a kind of Ouija board thing, and the temperature in the room had suddenly dropped, and they were scared out of their minds, and the warden phoned me up, um, and I went up and it was like walking into a refrigerator and all I did was say a prayer uh, and it calmed the kids down and the temperature came up. Now, I, I don't know what was happening there, but it was the only thing I felt like responding. It was a weird thing that happened. They'd scared themselves silly. 
And very often, uh, uh, I did another one in, in Oxford when there was a, a, a poltergeist. Um, they claimed to be present was putting their whiskey bottles in the candelabra during the night. Um, and and um, I, didn't, I didn't query um, the, the whiskey drinking, um, but, but the deliverance uh, advisor in the Diocese of Oxford told me to go and celebrate the Eucharist there. And I did, and it stopped. So there are more things in heaven and earth That's than are dreamt of. Yeah. Uh, but it's time we heard from you. Um, lights up, and then we'll have some questions. Um, okay. Right. Anyone? Yeah. 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 Thank you. <clears throat> I hope this isn't too personal a question, but I'd like to ask both speakers how they pray. Short answer or long answer? <laughs> um, I, the answer is quite simple. I pray for about, about three hours a day, um, of which um, for as much as I can sustain of it is, um, I suppose, what we'd call passive contemplation. Um, of a, and the other bit, um, I have a very strong emphasis in my prayer on praise. Um, I distinguish between praise and thanksgiving here. Thanksgiving is being grateful for nice things that have happened, like the weather. Um, and praise is trying just to be glad there is a God and honouring that. Um, I do some Bible-based meditation, um, and I vaguely, usually have an office book, the Roman Catholic office book, open because um, you can reassert your attention by looking at some text, I can. That's what I do, what do you do? <clears throat> I do a variety of things, some of which overlap with what you do, Sarah. Um, I certainly find the daily offices helpful, and I think that's a place where words give structure and uh, a space for listening to what one hears through the words. Um, I aspire to a model of, of everything becoming prayer, of, of praying constantly. So this is a time of prayer together, if you wish. Um, I wouldn't say I'm good at that, um, I'm constantly failing, but um, I think at my best I find that everything becomes uh, an aspect of prayer. If, if you asked me the place in which I feel most at prayer, most prayerful, it would be in silence, it would be in a place with no words. Yeah. Is that, was that the question you were asking? I, let, I also have, I may say, so left out the Eucharist yes, for some reason, yes. which for me is definitely a part of prayer. Yes, and also uh, the Jesus prayer is, is another thing I find helpful. Was that, um, was that yep. the area you were... Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Hi, I um, had a question about um, the fact that everybody hears voices, and we either it's us hearing ourselves speaking and we're identifying them as our own minds, or in your case you hear voices, and when you like what they're hearing, quite you like what you're hearing, you define it as God. And when you've got people coming to see you with psychiatric conditions... Presumably they're not liking what they're hearing. And I guess my question is, if you are trying to tell people, or trying to treat people for the voices that they're not liking, and by telling them or trying to get them to experience maybe a different concept of them actually being coming from their subconscious, their, those voices being about how their brains are processing the world, and maybe they're not real voices, so that not demons or whatever you might want to call them, does that then, how do you square that 
with the other voices that, in my view, are not real as well. They might be nice, but that you might define as God. So if, if you're saying that don't listen to the bad voices because they're making you upset, how do you square that with, but do listen to the other voices that you might want to call God because they're nice? Well, hang on. First... <laughs> we'll give the shrink the first go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, voices can be real and not be God's voice. So I need to listen to Sarah's voice. I need to listen to your voice. I need to listen to the voice of my own subconscious, even though I'm not quite sure whether I'm fooling myself or whether there's something important going on here. But, but I need to be good at listening to all kinds of voices. The problem is it's a bit like Bruce Almighty, isn't it, when he, he uh, you know, is in the position of being God and receiving all the prayers, and he's overcome by this cacophony of voices. What do you do when the number and kinds of voices that you're hearing are overwhelming? How do you distinguish the ones that are helpful, life-giving, full of consolation, from the ones that bring desolation and despair? I think it, it's more about discerning the voices than it is about listening to them. Can I just add to that? Um, I'm not quite sure where we've got the idea that God always says nice things. Yeah, that problem too. <laughs> um, you know, I think it is perfectly possible to piss God off and have God let you know that you've done that um, by various different means. Uh, unsettledness at prayer, um, muddle, um, lack of uh, disciplined willpower, all sorts of things that are not pleasant, um, aren't nice, but are still clearly good for one. Um, or good for me, I should say. So I don't think I distinguish what voices I will listen to by whether they're nice or not, but whether they confer meaning that's taken over a longer period of time. Um, yeah, that they convey meaning that is growing, that is growthful. Um, I don't think it's about whether they're nice. I really don't. Um, I also really want to challenge the idea that everyone hears voices, because I think a lot of people do. I think also a lot of people don't. Um, certainly God is not limited to saying nice things to the chosen few, um, any more than madness is limited to saying things to um, psychotic serial killers. I don't think you can just make that distinction. I really don't. I think that's not... Um, honourable to the people who have recorded what they've heard throughout a couple of thousand years. Um, it, I think it's more complicated than nice, nasty. It's more about discernment. It's a good word. Okay. Um, I, I, I can say that if, if God uses a microphone, I, I don't envy him. It's a nerve-wracking experience, <laughs> and I would prefer to be silent. But I, I do think, um, for myself, sometimes that God has created this psychiatry that silence is God, because I believe in a God that um, uh, favours atheism as much as belief in God. Um, so I, I believe sometimes in a God who prefers um, the people who want to um, be atheists to be atheists and for God to be silenced. I believe in that kind of God sometimes, but other times I, I believe in, in a God that does want to communicate. But I think it depends on the individual. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes really good sense, either. Yeah, can you pass it down to the hand in front and then we'll go over here? Can, yeah, can yeah, I yeah. just say in response yeah, to yeah, that, yeah, because yeah, I, think, I think that there's a lot there that we could think about. Um, there is an experience of the absence of God and some of my atheist friends interpret that experience as just what it is at face value. There is no God. 
for me, it's more of a dark night of the soul kind of experience of, of how do I understand my faith in God at the times when he isn't saying nice things to me and patting me on the back and making me feel good. And, and I feel that if I'm just a friend of God when things are going well and the sun is out, then I'm not a very good friend. So for me, a part of uh, being a Christian is, is, is exploring my faith, what it means to me at those times when God seems to be absent, if you like, times of atheism. Um, but I continue to believe despite the experience of the absence of God. I come from the United States, so um, psychiatry has been a way of solving personal problems for decades. And I'm just thinking, and I would like your comment on, if a person went to a psychiatrist and claimed that they were hearing voices, um, wouldn't the help they would get from the professional depend very much on the world frame that the... Um, professional was working from. In other words, if that particular psychiatrist um, had no um, strong affiliation with any faith system, they wouldn't even allow for the possibility of uh, this person hearing something uh, that was coming from outside him or herself. I would like your comment on that. Thank you. Who's going to go over that? Do you want to go first? No, you go first. <laughs> I think that's a technical question. This is a, a serious problem, and it's a matter of very heated current debate in this country and on the other side of the Atlantic and, and elsewhere in the world, but particularly in the United Kingdom. Um, some of my colleagues, and I have to be careful here because I, I don't want to put words into their mouths, but some of my colleagues would like to keep religion and psychiatry as separate as possible as a way of responding to what you've, you've just put your finger on as a very real concern. Um, others of us feel that actually the way forward is for psychiatry to take religion on board, religion and spirituality, because we're not just talking about traditional faith um, you know, systems here, but, but other non-traditional spiritualities as well. Um, and that actually psychiatrists need to be better informed about these things, better able to converse with people about them, better able to engage in a patient-centred dialogue within which um, the view of, of the person receiving care is respected as, as the predominant framework for exploring these things. But some of my colleagues feel that that's not possible, that actually you can't make judgments as to what's a constructive and healthful system of faith and what's not, and that therefore it's best to exclude the thing as much as possible from clinical practice. Now, I don't think that's realistic or possible. Uh, and, and actually, if, if you push some of these proponents of this view, they will say, well, of course, you do sometimes have to talk about these things. But they'll put the brakes on as much as possible. They'll avoid addressing it as much as possible within clinical practice. So th th this is a contentious area. Mm -hmm. Can I take up a tiny little point? One of the things, you began this sentence by saying this person, hearing voices, goes to a psychiatrist. Now, where the person is going, they have some chance, we hope, of finding a psychiatrist whose views on this matter they can determine before they go. The real problem is when the police pick up somebody in the street behaving in an extremely complicated way um, and the person is getting no choice about whether they see a psychiatrist or not. If they say, I'd rather see my parish priest, the mm. likelihood is, um, not the certainty, but the likelihood is the police station will say, tough. Mm. Instead, we're going to get you know, the whole 
mechanism for sectioning you. Um, up and running, they don't always. Very often people want help and can't access it. But I do think that one of the things about defining people as mad is you're then, all states actually, but us, has also given ourselves the right to take away their agency at very basic levels. And that really complicates things. You know, this free and independent person can look around for whether they'd rather speak to a clergy person or um, their mummy or um, a doctor or, you know, whereas once you've fallen into the system, you may lose the agency to make those decisions, and that seems to be something that's very hard to address, and in, it, including compulsory uh, medication. Um, and it, it isn't one of the things that's happened to our society in this atomization. We've lost any sense of enclosing a variety of human experiences, apart from anything else, um, everything becomes professionalised. Um, so, so those people are handed over either to prison or to the medical model, um, and there's no there's no way of somehow integrating them into society as yes. such. Um, and I, is there any chance of recovering that? <clears throat> there are therapeutic communities where where you um, where you can <clears throat> reintegrate, but it's very tough in our atomized society, isn't it? It's handed over to people like you. <laughs> I mean, so you, you find someone raving on the, on the pavement and you walk round them. I'll give you a little sign of hope. I live in a very small um, <coughs> uh, upland rural community and our parish, uh, our community council, has just turned down our county's offer of resilience uh, resourcing on the ground that all that would do is undermine the astonishing care we all take of each other without it. Yeah. And that it is better for people rather than everybody um, you know, having whatever it's going to be, fire blankets, it's much better for people to go and look after their neighbours when their houses are on fire. Um, and we have, do in fact sustain in that community with very little medical intervention, although some medical support, somebody who would be, in most people's terms, mad. Um, and he, I do believe, is sustained. His life is sustainable mm. because for people who've known him all his life, I haven't because I've only moved there, but who've known him all his life and just, <coughs> they understand. Yeah. And, uh, I met one of my, uh, Maury Ferguson. She said, I'm exhausted. I said, well, she said, I had to go down all the way to air with Alec to buy a new tractor. <laughs> I couldn't think of any other way to cheer him up. <laughs> But that's, you know, he's in his 60s, and that has really happened all his life since his parents died. So I think what it's about is smaller communities mm. where the mm. fragmentation mm. is mm. different. Mm. But, you know, I know mm. the names of everybody who lives within 10 miles of me. Mm. That is an mm. extraordinary privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how we, mm. re how we re recreate that mm. a community of care. I don't Mon know. Monasteries are good places for the mad as well. <laughs> <laughs> To go back to the question and the, the talk, uh, and I wonder whether you would care to comment, please, that it seems to me from what the examples you've been given, putting aside your personal faith, that both the growth of psychiatry and psychology illustrates the voices people hear, the messages people receive, are based on a human condition, human learning. And to focus on that and find a way through that is the way of helping individuals. Okay, that sounds like a, a statement worth hearing. Anyone else over here? 
Uh, yes, all right, yeah. Two in the front. How are we doing for time? We're all right, yeah. Um, there's a psychiatrist down in London, I think he must be near uh, a little time. bit louder, no. please. Yeah. Closer? Yep. No. Um, down in uh, Alan Lang, I think was his name. <clears throat> he specialised in working with patients who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he identified many of them as cases of demonic possession. And claimed considerable success in casting out the demons. Mm. We kind of touched on that, but, that, but I mean, um, I'm not keen on it myself, having seen The Exorcist. Um, but uh, I'm not keen on it either. Mm. There's um, a paper been published. I forget whether it was the end of last year or early this year in Journal of Religion and Health, which is, generally speaking, a respectable peer-reviewed journal. Um, that publishes really good stuff in this area. But this particular paper simply asserts from a, an Islamic point of view pr primarily that a lot of um, so-called schizophrenia is actually caused by demons. And what was controversial was not that this point of view was being put forward, because we all know that people believe that, but, um, but rather that it was put forward in a peer-reviewed journal without comments and without critique. Um, the author was allowed to make assertions that were not evidence-based, contrary points of view were not um, given space within the journal, uh, no critique of this point of view was offered. And of course the danger is that um, you then get a lot of the stuff we've unfortunately read about in our newspapers where people go not to mental health services for help, they, they go to uh, a pastor in a local church who may or may not know anything about these matters. And uh, sometimes this leads to abusive harmful, even um, lethal, fatal um, you know, outcome. So um, this is not a good way forward, um, except as a part of a constructive debate within which we can critique that point of view and say, well, yes, you know, maybe that is one way of talking about these things, but it's also an unhelpful way in, 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 a, in a sense. And you know, look at what's unhelpful about it so as to avoid those unhappy outcomes. Mm. May I go back to the gentleman's remark beforehand? Because it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't see, I think, that modern psychiatry and psychology has come up with a possible explanation of certain intrapsychic phenomenon. But I don't see that those in any way disprove or prove that that's the only form of voice hearing that there is. I don't see that they've even tried to do that. First of all, <coughs> no one, I think, not St. Teresa and certainly none of us think that all voices as heard by anyone who says they've heard them are the voice of God. There are lots of forms of voices that you can hear that nobody for one second thinks are the voice of God. But I still would want to keep a space open which says it could be. That's all. Maybe it is. Maybe really God does in for certain people. Maybe she does speak to them. Um, that's only not a claim I'd make myself, um, I mean for myself and with Chris I think that my experience of God is not usually through, um, it's not through uh, uh, visions either, way. I'm remarkably seldom visited by angels. I'd really like it to happen, but no. Um, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't prove the absence of proof is not a proof of absence. That's what I'd want to say. I don't believe that the modern psychiatric, psychological discourse has tied this one up yet. I just don't. I don't agree with you. Yes. 
so, oh, so following on from that, um, if someone was to come to either of you and say, um, I believe God is speaking to me, and, um, but um, how do I know that this is God speaking? Uh, what would you reply? Well, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the person who comes and says to me, how do I know that this is God? <laughs> because actually that person is a person that you can have a very exciting conversation with. Um, what I'm more often challenged by, the people who usually send me emails, actually, um, who say that this, that and the other has happened and clearly God wants me to do this and I must respond to this divine imperative. People around me don't seem to believe me. What should I do? <laughs> that, that's much more tricky. That's much more tricky. Because it's easy to get sucked into dismissing them and denying the possibility that God is speaking to them in the way that everyone else is. And that continues to polarise things and leads nowhere constructive, as far as I can see. So you have to open up the possibility of God speaking um, alongside the critical willingness to examine whether or not, in fact, this is God. And that, that's quite tricky to do by email. <laughs> <laughs> when I wrote a book of silence, I got some quite strange... I got some lovely, lovely correspondence. But I also got some correspondence that was very strange. And one of them was an email, indeed not just one email, several emails, um, from somebody who told me that God had told him he was to come and live in a tent in my garden, and that if I was not positively welcoming about this, then some very, very nasty sexual tortures would happen to me. Well, frankly, the only way to deal with that is not to answer. Yes. Simply not to reply. That was, but that was somebody... But on the other hand, people have also come to me and said they think they hear the voice of God, and I would tend to say, what did God say to you? Um, that would be my response, because I don't have any duty of care like you do. <laughs> I have only duty of self-amusement, really. <laughs> Imaginative engagement, that's better than... I'm going to take one more question, the young woman there, and that's afraid we've got to wrap up. Our hour has come... Uh, witching hour. Yeah. I had a question for the psychiatrist. I just wondered if you could um, tell us a little bit more about the place of religion in, in a mental health assessment. If someone comes out of the blue and is sectioned or is picked up by the police, you know, on the street, and, um, I don't know, they're walking around with a statue of the Virgin Mary, for instance, or how, personally, or, or your colleagues... How would you assess that? Would you, yes, sensitively? Would you try and establish, for instance, because we know that a lot of psychosis have a religious element to it, often to people who, when they're not ill, are either atheists or agnostics. Um, so I just wondered if you could... Well, I think the important <coughs> thing is that there should be an assessment. And um, incidentally, for those who are interested in these matters, there is uh, a position statement of the Royal College of Psychiatrists available on their <coughs> website, uh, Recommendations for Psychiatrists on Spirituality and Religion. And one of the things that we uh, managed to get included in that is a, a recommendation that uh, a spiritual and religious assessment should routinely be considered in all cases. We, we wanted, some of us wanted to say that it should always be undertaken, but the point was made that it's not always possible or necessary and that priorities of time sometimes dictate otherwise. So it is there that this is a matter that needs assessment, and I think that's the fundamental, important thing that needs to be said. 
How you then undertake that assessment is, is a vexed question. Um, there are many, many uh, systems uh, of, of approaching this that have been recommended and written about, um, which I'd be happy to talk to you more about some other time. Um, but of course, it, it can be done in 30 seconds very superficially, or you can take an hour and a half and go into great depth, and, and you have to use your judgment in any given case. The sort of instance that you're alluding to um, I think is tricky because if you're not a psychiatrist who comes from the same background, you may or may not understand that properly. And um, it may be that another member of that faith community would say, well, actually, this is perfectly normal behaviour. We all do this all of the time. Uh, what are you worried about? And, and, you know, either you need to come to the conclusion that there is no mental illness or that the illness is somewhere else located and it's nothing to do with the religious belief. But um, if, if you don't belong to that tradition, it's sometimes very difficult to judge what is actually normal, whatever normal is, what is creative and helpful, and what, what is the opposite. And this is why some of my colleagues are saying that actually the distinction is too difficult. Um, we shouldn't even presume as psychiatrists that we're in a position to make that distinction. I'd, I'd argue with that point of view, but, but it is a point of view that's quite prevalent. And on that word, I'm afraid we're, gonna ha we're being shoved out of here. Um, <laughs> the session was called Has Psychiatry Silenced God? Um, in this session, God has, if not silenced psychiatry, at least had a wee word with it. So um, thank you for coming. It's been a fascinating session. We'll be at the signing tent for those who want a blether or even a book signed. Thank you very much for coming. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.